All right, well, we are in the book of Romans still, and we're in Romans chapter 11, nearing the end of this chapter, but we still have some, uh, still some, some messages out of it, and so uh, we'll be going to Romans chapter 11, and verses 30 to 32 tonight is where we'll be, and I want to read down through those three verses here. It says, For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful again for your word, and as we open it up tonight, we are reminded of the God of mercy, the one who certainly, Lord, you have given all that you can give, and and you've not also, you've not given us what we deserve. We thank you for such a gracious and merciful God. And for just being the one who had that planned even before uh, we ever were even in this world. And we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us tonight. And we pray your blessing upon our time this evening as we open up your word. Help it uh, just go home into our hearts and minds this evening. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We have here in this section, um, uh, again, uh, we're looking at the topic sort of has God rejected his people or cast off his people in reference to the Jew. And you remember right at the beginning of this chapter, Paul opens up and he certainly kind of calls the different witnesses to the stand. And we looked at some of those witnesses. He calls himself to the stand and saying, I was a Jew uh, of the tribe of Benjamin and, and I was converted. And then he calls the prophets and he uses Elijah as the illustration. Remember when Elijah was thinking he's all alone and there were no other people of faith in the land and he was just ready to die. Uh, God says, no, there's still 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And uh, that reminds me that, you know, there's often a lot more that's going on that we're just not aware of sometimes and that God is at work in all kinds of different places, in all kinds of different ways. And sometimes, you know, he's as, he certainly is as concerned in your life and my life as anybody else, but, but he's big. He's a big God. And then he, he calls the, uh, the patriarchs, right? And he also calls uh, the, the Gentiles. And we've been looking at the Gentiles, particularly in the last uh, bit, the Jewish people and the Gentiles. And he, uh, each one of those bears record of the grace and mercy of God and that he's not done with his own people, the Jew, all right? In reference to his earthly people that he chose um, for himself in a, to show his grace and his mercy, and we've looked at them over and over again. And out of the Jewish people came certainly the blessings of all the earth because that's what was given to them back in Genesis chapter 12 when Abraham was told and God covenanted with Abraham saying all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed because of you, Abram. And they, we certainly are because out of Abraham's seed and his descendants arises one who is the Savior, which is Christ. And uh, we're, we're thankful for all of that. But again, showing God is faithful to his promise. He always is faithful and never breaks his promises whatsoever. To understand a little bit about uh, what goes on here, um, a quote from a book here from John Enser, and he says this. He says, God's desire to make his mercy the apex of his own glory in the eyes of all creation. He says, and that God desires, excuse me, to make his mercy the apex of his own glory in the eyes of all creation. 
It is the ultimate reason for the creation of the world and the plan of redemption. It is the ultimate reason we should believe he is ready to do a great work of grace in us. We come to this section of scripture and we're reminded of that, that God in his mercy, uh, the mercy is, is not getting what you deserve and grace is getting something you don't deserve. And when you look at those two, they're coupled together. They're very closely related, but we're looking also right here tonight at particularly the mercy of God. And all of that is done that we may demonstrate, um, really, or demonstrates the character of God. Uh, and, and if you think about this in a real sense, some have said this, that really God is the one that came up with sin so that he could show his mercy and his grace. Well, he permitted sin, and he allowed certainly man and angels to be created with the ability to sin. That's, in the beginning, free will is what we would call that. Um, now, we don't truly have free will anymore because man actually has a bent to do evil, and you'll always go that direction. You don't freely choose, but Adam had a free will, and he was able to choose to do right or choose to do wrong, and he did so without already the basis of having a sin nature. You know, he didn't have the temptations that we do, and he didn't have all that. So Adam, when he sinned, it was a great sin, wasn't it? And Eve, I mean, when they chose to disobey God, sin was passed on to them and also to all their descendants, and we're part of that group, okay? But you could say it this way. I don't believe biblically that you won't find that God is the author of sin. And contrary to that, there are verses that would contradict it, saying, for instance, like of Christ, he did no sin, he knew no sin, in him there was no sin. Three different apostles testify of him in saying that. And so I don't think sin originates with God. Now, did sin, uh, the, did God know about sin originating? Yeah, it did. But one of the benefits, and I, if there's any benefit that comes out of the fall of man, is that it gets the, we get the opportunity to see the mercy of God displayed and the grace of God given to those who are disobedient. And in, in that way, God has taken sin and used it marvelously for his own glory. Uh, and again, he's not you know, using sin, to, to, to the specific action of sin or the attitude of sin to glorify himself, but rather showing that he can be merciful to sinners. And really what we see here in this section is the merciful God, or you know, uh, Jonathan Edwards had the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And of course, that, that was quite a powerful sermon he preached back in the 1700s. And really, this section is, is similar to that, but it's, it's really sinners in the hands of a merciful God. That's how Ray Pritchard puts it in his comments on this section. And I often think of it that way. That's really, if you are a saved uh, individual tonight, you have, you have trusted Christ, you're a Christian, whatever, that's what we are. We're sinners in the hands of a merciful God. And he's done so much for us. That's the graciousness of God. And really, without sin, we could not fully appreciate that, maybe. Now, uh, some have said that, you know, God, to show those attributes of sin, of, uh, excuse me, of mercy in the, in the face of sin, he had to allow sin to come in. He had to create it in a way or whatever. And I don't see it that way. I, I think Abraham, not Abraham, but Adam in the garden still could experience the fullness of God, okay? And he could understand the nature of God. And he certainly intellectually could have known God is a merciful God. But he didn't experience that until after the fall when God came looking for him. <laughs> and he was hiding. 
And at that very moment when his eyes had been opened and he had known what he had done and seen his own, uh, what sin had left him in, in a naked state in the sense of that's what it does to us, right? It leaves us in, in a state of shame. And here he is right before a holy God. And God had every right to just destroy Adam at that point and put him back as the dust of the earth. That's where he came from. Because he's God and he has every right to do that. And he would have been perfectly at liberty and just to do that. But he doesn't. Instead, he confronts Adam and Eve. And they acknowledge what they've done. You know, they, in a roundabout way, they acknowledge it, right? They first blame, you know, Eve blames the man, he blames the woman, you know, that kind of thing. Blame the serpent. And, and then they, you know, go try to, after the blame game, finally coming to the realization of what they've done. And God lays it at their feet. And instead of wiping them out, he goes and he covers them. And he does so by taking an animal, and probably a lamb or a goat, we don't know that from the book of Genesis, but in the types, in keeping with that later on, that's what was the animal that was chosen later on when God instructed man to take an animal and have a substitute die in the place of the sinner, the sinful person. And that is evidence throughout Scripture. And so God is the first one to kill anything. It was God. He kills an animal, takes the skins, and he covers them with the, Adam and Eve with the skins of this animal. And we don't know exactly what that was like or anything. It doesn't say, you know, probably because it's good because we all think that's the fashion we have to wear now. But he does it as a picture of mercy. And great mercy in that something else died in the place of Adam and Eve. And grace in that he covers them. And he has to cast them forth from his presence. And he does. He sends them out of his presence. But he does so with a hope of redemption as long as they trust him. Some have said, well, did Adam get saved? Well, the Bible doesn't say specifically that he did, that he did that. But we can understand that the action in which that Adam received that skin was demonstration of his trust in God. That somehow, even though Adam had messed it all up, God still had a great plan. And that plan, if you just trusted the Lord, would include some way to get over death. And he, Adam doesn't know all the details. And, and later on, Noah doesn't know all the details. And Abraham doesn't know all the details yet. And neither does David. And, and men, even the first century, during, you know, you think about the uh, apostles that went out and others. And the truth is, we don't have all the details. But we have more of the details now than ever. <laughs> See, we have the completed word of God and the revelation that he's given us. And we can look back at the details. And we know that all those things that were right from the beginning were a picture of God's mercy, God's grace. And they pointed to Jesus Christ, who ultimately would be the sacrifice for sin once for all. No more needed anywhere else. So when you come for this, uh, this piece of, uh, of Scripture that we're looking at tonight, we see in focus the mercy of God, and we see how that God created a world that really fell into sin or committed sin and was cursed because of it, and yet God, in his mercy, sent his son to redeem that world. And the strength of sin is seen in the sacrifice of Christ. Because the only way sin could be cured once and for all and paid for is that God himself, God the Son, would come and die and do that. No one else could. No one else. 
Really, that's what mercy implies. Mercy implies that, first of all, that there is an act that is needed to be to have mercy on. Okay, uh, it's not merciful to to not you know do something to somebody that doesn't deserve it. All right, does that make sense? What I'm saying? Uh, Napoleon, when he was uh, you know the French general Napoleon, later emperor or whatever, he uh, had a woman come to him, a mother. And she came pleading for mercy on behalf of her son who was scheduled to be executed because of crimes he had done. And it was under the law worthy of death. And he was scheduled to be executed the next day. And the woman came and and pled for mercy before Napoleon. And he looked at the woman. He said, your son doesn't deserve mercy. And the woman cried and said, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And it's so true. And, and because of that, he pardoned the man and sent him back to his mother. And when I think of that, that's really a picture of what God has done for us. Not one of us deserves mercy. Not one of us deserves the grace of God. But because God is like he is in, in his character, he's given it to us. And he's given it to us abundantly, hasn't he? By the way, the Bible is replete with examples of this this demonstration of God's mercy and statements about his mercy. It's not just a New Testament principle, by the way, either. Something that, oh, we come to, for instance, um, the Gospels and then the Epistles here, and that's where mercy is seen. But you really see mercy throughout the whole of Scripture, right? As I've already said, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through, and you see his, his mercy. First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 13 there. I like this. It says, um, David, as he said to Gad, he says, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great. Where did David want to go? To the Lord, because he knew the Lord is merciful. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God gracious and merciful should have highlighted that last phrase too because it goes with it that's what he's like oh i'm glad that's old testament all right luke chapter 1 verse 78 through the tender mercies of god with which the day spring from on high has visited us who's the day spring from on high jesus do you know do you want to see the mercy of god displayed you'll see it in jesus because he's God the Son. And God said, okay, you know, all these centuries and right from the time of, of man falling into sin and everything, you have seen my mercy displayed, but I'm going to show you now my mercy in the flesh. And I'm going to send to you the day spring. And that's one of the ti- titles that Christ was given there uh, in that Christmas account, right, in that Luke chapter 1. So then... In, in Romans nine sixteen, in this uh, previous section, so then is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Talking about how we come to Christ, right? And it's not our will uh, and all that, but you know what? It's his mercy that is demonstrated to us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy. Oh, boy. 
And we've looked at that when we went through the book of Ephesians, but I, I go back to that book all the time, and I just, I just park myself there sometimes and think, he's rich in mercy. What does that mean? It means what it says. I mean, it's, it's not too deep there, but think about someone who's infinitely rich. There, there's people here on earth that are very wealthy, okay, that literally cannot spend all the money they have because they don't have the time to spend it. I, I don't know. I've never experienced that kind of problem. But, but there are people that are like that, like a Bill Gates or uh, you know, some of the, the founders of Google or, or whatever, other people that are very wealthy today. And they're so wealthy that even if they went out shopping to spend that day, they could never spend all their wealth because it continues to accumulate. But there is a finite number, and, and they often will publish that every year, you know, the Forbes uh, uh, top 100 or top 50 or whatever of, of wealthy people in the world, and there's a, there's a limit of how much wealth they have. And soon there may be somebody who's a trillionaire, I guess, that's, uh, that's coming, I guess. I, I don't know exactly how that's going to work, but um, uh, it, it, and when I say all that, there's a limit to man's riches, but not God's. God can be as merciful to me as he is to you, and he can do that infinitely forever. And he has to do it infinitely forever because his mercy is eternal. From before and after, I mean, that's ever, okay, both directions. He's merciful in his character forever. He's merciful before there was a creation. Figure that one out. (laughs) How would God be merciful before creation? Because that's who he is. It's his character. And those that would have known that would be the Godhead, God, okay? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, knowing of the character of themselves, of of God himself. But man would know it only after redemption was offered and mercy was given to them at that point. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 We often quote this as a matter of prayer, but look what it says. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see the words grace used twice there and mercy used, and that's they're coupled together very close because in the great thing the Lord does is not only does he he pass over in judgment in that he does not give us what we deserve for breaking his rules, but he also gives us infinitely grace, all right? Forever and ever, both directions. That means eternally, in the presence of God, I will have as much grace available to me then as I do now, as has always been. He's a gracious God. He's a merciful God. Sorry, I'm probably stretching your minds tonight, and my mind stretched a bit today too, but I, I, sometimes that just blows me away that he's like that. My mercy has a limit. I have to tell you that sometimes it's not very long ask my kids don't don't do that but i they, they know you know i they come out of the you know say something was wrong boom you snap at them right and that's the extent of my mercy sometimes and i have to go back and make and say i'm sorry but god doesn't have to do that Titus chapter 3, verse 5, Not by works of righteousness by which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Wow. Through the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. You know, I look at it as, as this. Picture, picture uh, 
somebody that has been all dressed up, you, you've clothed them in, in their beauty and righteousness, you know? That's what he did with Adam and Eve. Placed them in a garden that was absolutely perfect in every way. Not a thing wrong. And there they are, clothed in their own, you know, in, in the Lord's righteousness, because sin hadn't entered the picture in that, pro, that, that whole extent. But then sin enters into the picture, and now that garment literally gets covered with blood, their own blood, really, because death was upon them, the sentence of death. And yet the Lord comes and he covers them with a greater. <laughs> and he was covering them really with Christ. Christ hadn't come yet to. Uh, die on the cross nor had he uh, risen from the dead yet but they were saved the same way we are saved today we look back by faith they looked ahead by faith we don't know all the details we know more than adam and eve but they didn't know all the details either they just said lord i'm going to trust you that's it and they were saved by his grace his mercy and then that's what it talks about through the washing regeneration of the renewing of the holy spirit that's how the process, but, and, and think of that, you know, almost a picture of, of what he does in washing us, not by waters of baptism, that's not the term there, but the renewing of the Holy Spirit, living water. That's all, that's all you need. James chapter 5, verse 11. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the intended, uh, by the end intended by the Lord that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. We have the book of Job, probably the oldest book in the Bible, chronologically. Job lived about the time of the patriarchs, so Abraham's day. And we find in the book of Job a picture of a man who, I mean, his life just falls apart. In the end, God is compassionate to him, even though Job, believe it or not, deserved everything he got. So, and more, and I would too. You'd say, but yeah, he was a man. He didn't do anything wrong. The Bible says that of him. He, you know, he was certainly a sinner because later on he repents at the end of the book. You, only a sinner can repent. But Job, very righteous man who shunned evil and, and feared God. That's what God told, uh, says in chapter 1 of him. And yet, you know, you only saw the mercy and the compassion of God at the end of Job's time there in the book when Things are restored to him. And God is gracious to him and continues the line of Job <laughs> and says, bless you. And that's the way he's done with us, really. Back there to Romans chapter 11. You have here, I highlighted these words because look what it says. For as you were once disobedient to God yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, shown you they also may obtain mercy. And then look at verse 32. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. You see those words? There's four times each one of them appears. Disobedience and mercy disobedience and mercy keeps on going down through those and it's compared and really what uh, Paul is writing about here he's talking about God's purpose and how he worked if you think about it it was when man was first created 
uh, and you had Adam and Eve, and then all the way through up to Genesis 12, really, when he calls a man named Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, you had only Gentiles. That's it, just Gentiles. And then he calls a man out named Abram, and Abram's a Gentile, but he, he says, out of you, I'm going to make a special people. And the Jews arise out of the family of Abraham. Now you have Jews and Gentiles. And there was salvation offered to Gentiles, salvation later offered to Jews. But then the Jews rejected the Messiah who came out of them. That's their disobedience. And Paul talks about that. But through their disobedience, you see, it's kind of interesting because the disobedience of the Gentiles really led to the obedience of a man who was going to follow God in spite of idolatry and everything else going on in the land. And he finds mercy, Abram, right? And in Abram, his people find mercy. But then his people reject and they are disobedient. And now because of that, we've looked at this, because the Jews were disobedient, the message goes back to the Gentiles. But God's not done with the Jew or the Gentile. And as he says here, for God has committed them to all disobedience that he might have mercy on all. And we'll come to that verse here in a minute. You see, God has a plan for everybody. <laughs> and it incorporates everybody, not just Jew, not just Gentile. And we've been looking at that as we've studied the book of uh, Romans here and looked very carefully at, at this verse as well. And I, I could talk more about it, but um, verse 32, um, well, a couple things here. God talks about the, uh, the Jewish people and what they did was a, a terrible thing to reject their own Messiah. And he calls it great disobedience here, or disobedience. Um, matter of fact, Amos chapter 3, verse 2, an interesting verse here. It's a verse spoken by a Jewish man, Amos, who is a, a farmer, by the way, uh, called to be a prophet. And he speaks to the Jewish people and he says this, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. This is the Lord speaking here. But he says, Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. That's a harsh saying. You see, because the Jews had a special relationship with the Lord in that they were given the prophets, they were given the word of God, they were given revelation, they were entrusted with it, and they were to take that to other people, they didn't. And God says, because of that, you're going to be judged harsh. It's sort of what Romans 11 is talking about as well. Romans 11.25 says it this way, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. There's, And we've looked at this in a couple weeks ago there, that this whole idea that the the Jews, as they rejected Messiah, there has been a blindness placed upon them. But God will lift that. And he's going to be merciful to them again. He is already merciful to them even now. Back there to Romans 11.32, it says, For God has committed them all to disobedience. Now, it sounds sort of like, uh, by that translation, that does a, a rendering of it, that God has uh, made us disobedient. And that's not quite the way it reads in the Greek. Um, it actually reads as he is bound over or put boundaries on. He's put boundaries on the disobedient. In other words, he is the righteous judge and he's confined us in our disobedience. That's a good thing. 
Uh, I think of someone who is standing before a judge and judgment is pronounced or a, a pre-judgment even before an official rendering of judgment. They, they're, they're, he says, lock them up. That's the drooling. And here he's saying this, that our disobedience has caused our own confinement. And that isn't the judge's fault, is it? When someone is led off to prison, shouldn't be anyways. You say, well, if that judge didn't make that decision, I wouldn't be here, you know? Well, no, if you hadn't done the crime, you wouldn't do the time, right? I mean, that's, that's the whole point. God is the judge. Unbelievers are the prisoners. Unbelief is the prison. We're locked up in our own unbelief. And sin and corruption are the chains. And all of those can be broken by faith in Christ. It's a wonderful, you know, of course, as the gospel, we, we look at the gospel and that's what it's about. God is gracious on both Jew and Gentile. By the way, the New Living Translation puts it this way, same verse, for God has imprisoned everyone in, disobe- in disobedience so he could have mercy on everyone. You think about that in, in some ways, um, maybe I'm going too far than what this verse is teaching, but I'm thinking a little bit about how God even confines us to a certain amount of years on this earth. That's a good thing. You say, well, no, not if you're the one that's getting ready to die, you know. The ages come out, the years tick away, and, and you know, the, I look at my own life, and there are probably statistically more years behind me than ahead of me, you know. Uh, and when you think of that, you think, whoa. But think of it this way. If we lived, if he hadn't put a limit to Adam and said, Adam, you're confined. You're not only confined to being excluded of this garden, but you're confined in that you were going to die someday. And Adam would live uh, hundreds of years beyond that, right? Hundreds of years beyond what we normally would live. And when you think about all that, that Adam still had a date of death. If we didn't, we could continue to sin forever. If we didn't, we could probably, for some that really do some very wicked things, they could do a lot of damage forever. God has put us in boundaries. And he's saying your sin or the, the action of your sin is going to come to an end as well. But I have mercy on you. I have a way that you need not die even. And, and that is seen, of course, in the mercy seat of the Old Testament. Remember the picture of the mercy seat? It was that article that God told him to build there, Exodus 25. And then Leviticus 16 is the, is the ceremonies that go with it. But it was this box made of acacia wood. That is a, an enduring wood, but it was overlaid with pure gold. But I think, again, we know from the book of Hebrews, these things were a shadow of a greater to come. The, mer- the Ark of the Covenant was, what I'm talking about there, um, this box, it was a-, a picture of Christ, a picture of redemption. See, it was at the Ark of the Covenant over that that the glory of God dwelt, and it's where God says in Exodus 25, he meets, or he will meet with his people. God wasn't limited to it, like we put him in the box, or he's only associated with that Ark, but that's where he promised to meet with his people. You say, well, why would that be so significant? Because God told him how to make it, design it. It was God's plan, not man's. And it was interesting. And then you remember the way it's described. It's, um, it had rings on it so that staves could be put through it. In other words, it was carried only a certain way. 
and very special that way, but it was to be residing in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, later in the temple. And it was on the top of that box, inside the box, first of all, were three things. You remember what they were? Manna, the rod that budded, Aaron's rod, and the tablets, the commandments of God. It's interesting that if you think of that as a picture of Christ, you have the rod that budded, that was life coming out of something dead. You have the manna, he is the bread of life, and he is the perfect law of God. He never broke God's law. But think of it from man's perspective. Okay, that's God's perspective. Picture of of Christ, his humanity being the wood, the deity being the gold, and all the things that went with that in God's plan. But then you think about that mercy seat on top. That was the dimensions are given there in Exodus 25. And it was on the mercy seat, this this golden raised platform with an edge around it, with two angels, cherubim, okay, images of them anyways, that were beaten out of a piece of gold with their wings touching and overshadowing their face looking towards the mercy seat. Interesting. Somebody said, well, you know, uh, don't make any graven images. Why would God say that? Because he's God. And you know what? He did say it. And they weren't to worship the ark, but they were to worship the God who told them to make the ark of the covenant. And you say, Ark of the Covenant. Okay. Now, once a year, a high priest would come on the Day of Atonement, and he would have to kill an animal, a bull. Its blood would be shed in such a way, slaughtered, okay? He would take the blood, and he would bring that in as an offering before the Lord. He would sprinkle the mercy seat seven times. And he would do so first for himself, because he was a sinner, then he'd go out and he'd take the blood of a goat or a lamb, I guess, and, and, and it says goat there, and, and he would kill the goat as well and take the blood there, and he would go in and he would um, do that again for the sin of the people. Every time that priest stood over that mercy seat and he looked down, he was seeing the blood that had to flow and to cover the blood of an innocent to cover the sin of the people. And he would look down and be reminded that in that covenant, that Ark of the Covenant, where the tablets that were God's law was written, and we broke those things. We broke your law, God. And the priest, too, was a picture of Christ in a, in a way because he was standing on behalf of the people and God in between as a mediator. And Christ is our mediator. Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy and says, there's but one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. And he is called our great high priest in the book of Hebrews. And you see that picture of the mercy seat. He was reminded that blood had to be applied. And the people outside didn't see that. It was just the, the priest, by the way, that watched that. Because only he was only allowed in there. That's it. And they stood outside. But by faith, the people of Israel, as they were knowing what was going on, they were trusting that their priest was going to do what he was supposed to and be faithful and to do that. And they were trusting God because God told them that's what they needed to do. And you say, well, that's weird. Why would God say that? Because God was just saying, trust me. Just like he told Adam and Eve, trust me. Just like he tells us today, trust me. But when Christ came and he put away sin forever by his death once for all, the Bible says, his death completed it. There's no more need for a high priest to stand at a mercy seat and sprinkle blood. 
There's no more need for him to confess the sins of Israel over a live goat outside that and, and send that off into, a, into the desert by a strong man. You know, that's, that's also in Leviticus 16 um, about what the priest was to do. A picture of how God not only forgives us of our sin, but he also bears our sin, takes it away, never to be remembered. All those stories that are true and they were there for us to, to be reminded of. Mercy illustrated. That's probably the clearest biblical illustration of mercy. I think there's other illustrations of mercy, uh, you know, that fall short of God's mercy, but times where we see things. I remember reading a story of President Calvin Coolidge, all right? And President Coolidge was in a hotel uh, in a city outside of, um, I can't remember which city it was now, but he was in a hotel and he had his security detail with him and all that. And he, he went to sleep. And in the middle of the night, he woke and there was a burglar in his room. And the man was going through his, his coat pocket <laughs> that was coat hanging there somewhere. And he was going through his coat pocket. President Coolidge woke up, kind of surprised, and confronted the man and talked to him. And actually found out that the man was a college student. And he didn't have any money to pay his ride back to his college. And he had a debt they needed to pay and some other things. And... He had broken in and he was stealing in the hotel. President Coolidge carried on a conversation with him to actually talk the guy into giving back his wallet. Found out this story of the debt the man had and all that. And President Coolidge took out $32 out of his wallet and he gave it to him. And he said, go out the way you came in or else the Secret Service will have to deal with you. <laughs> and he did. He let him go. People only found out about that after the death of President Coolidge, but... Uh, I say that because it's a picture of mercy and a picture of grace. Really, that guy deserved to be locked up minimally, right? And uh, because of what he did, he certainly didn't deserve to get money. He was coming to rob or steal. But, but grace was, was demonstrated. Mercy was demonstrated. We, we see that. And by the way, when we get that right perspective, that's when we are ready to trust the Lord not before that I end with this Luke 18 verses 9 to 14 remember this the story Jesus tells he says also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that means they were I'm, I'm good enough leave me alone you know self-righteousness that's what that's called that they were righteous and despised others two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee the other a tax collector the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. I love that phrase, not because it's a good thing, but he's praying with himself. Uh, I don't think God's even in the picture here, not because God can't hear him, but because the Pharisee only really wanted to hear his own words. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as that tax collector this tax collector he had he points probably to that this tax collector right isn't that the way we are sometimes in our own selves in our own self-righteousness oh i i'm much better than this crowd i don't need you god wasn't even in his prayers really it's praying with himself go on though look it says i fast twice a week i give tithes of all that i possess and the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as 
raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know what? That's the way Christ puts it, very simply. If you want salvation, you want to be justified. That's a biblical term that Christ used even before Paul used it. You have to understand we are sinners and we are in desperate need of mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Oh, I'm thankful for that. Father, we thank you for the word of God. And as we think of this tonight, I pray you would just even uh, bless it to our minds this week that we might um, show the mercy of God to others, to demonstrate his grace in our own lives and in the lives of others. Thank you, Lord, for salvation that is so rich and so free and that has been given to us who truly don't deserve it but deserve nothing but, but hell. And yet you're merciful. Thank you for that. May many come to that understanding in our world tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.